Very good morning. It's uh, wonderful to see all of you here in our second day of the Chinese New Year, and we praise the name of the Lord even as we look forward to a new year together. Let's commit this time unto the Lord. Father, as your people, we come to sit at the feet of Jesus, and Father, we look to you that you will impart your word, your living word to our hearts and our lives. And gracious God, even as we surrender this time to you, Father, we pray that your spirit will do the work in our hearts to be responsive and obedient to your word. We give you thanks and praise all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The start of a new year is always a good time to take stock and uh, to reevaluate our priorities and to uh, see what plans that the Lord might be impressing upon our hearts and our lives to do. I was reading a, uh, a short uh, excerpt of um, Apple's story, the Apple, the, the phone makers, uh, the Apple story about how, uh, as some of you would know, the iconic uh, founder uh, Steve Jobs started the uh, company in the late 70s and uh, they were in a sense a company that symbolized innovation, symbolized breakthrough experiences uh, for their customers and around uh, about 1984 to 85 um, the other management came in and they got disgruntled with uh, Steve Jobs, they kicked him out of his own company and so, uh, for a period of years, Apple was running uh, with uh, other management, not the founder. In, in the interim years where Steve Jobs was away from the company, uh, they kind of lost their way. They, they you know, invested and created a lot of products, a lot of models of each products, um, and their performance started to suffer. They uh, seemed to be a ship without a, a rudder. They were going all sorts of uh, directions without any... Uh, belief or vision in where they're heading and and so they had to bring uh, back Steve Jobs about in 1997 Steve Jobs came back to Apple and what he did was to bring the company back to their foundational beliefs of what it means to create a great product and one of the key things that he did when he uh, came back to the management or headed uh, the company was to take a hard look with all the product teams, um, what products they were trying to build or develop, and more importantly, why? Why this particular product? Why this particular model? And you know, for most cases, uh, they couldn't answer the question. I mean, it was you know some form of a, a thing that they did, and they tried to compete, but they didn't have a focus or strategic vision, and so. Uh, uh, Steve Jobs and the new team actually um, revamped the whole product line. They cancelled a lot of products and just focused on a few key products. Out of so many, they focused on just a few key ones that eventually led to the, um, to the iPhone uh, that we all know of. And it was a really a breakthrough product that defined a generation of smartphones and they had that decade of uh, dominance because of those few products, right? One of the things that he said was, uh, Steve Jobs said was, deciding what not to do is as important as deciding what to do. There are a lot of good things that we might want to do, uh, but not all of them are necessary and important. And if we want to have effectiveness and we want to have a, a vision, uh, we need to learn how to say no and prioritize on what is important. What, importantly for us as Christians, what has God placed into our lives that we need to focus on? Now, Apple is a human institution full of flaws, and so, of course, they are obviously losing their dominance in comparison to uh, uh, newer competitors. But for the life of faith, um, it's far more important to 
revisit and renew our relationship with God, especially in the start of the new year. And the story of Abraham, as recounted for us in Genesis 17, and of course, some of you are also on the reading plan, and you have been reading uh, the earlier chapters talking about the call of Abraham and what he went through, and now we are in uh, this particular phase of his life in chapter 17, where Abraham has this transformational encounter with God, where God helped Abraham to sharpen his focus on exactly how and what God intended for him to do. Now, in the past chapters, you would have read that Abraham, very early on when he was um, you know, about 75 years old, he got the call of God to go into the uh, land of Canaan. Promises were made that he will be made a great, out of him will come a great nation, he will be a blessing uh, to other nations. Now, since then, a lot of things have happened in Abraham's life, in the life of his family. It's very natural. Life gets complicated. I, I'm sure, you know, all, all of us here can relate to that. Uh, God has given us a promise, but life goes on, right? There are new priorities. There are new challenges to be met. There are new things that we need to struggle with in everyday realities of our existence. And so, uh, Abraham... I've gone through a lot. Since that promise, he has encountered a severe famine in the land of Canaan, the land that's supposed to be his inheritance. They went through a lot of uh, suffering through that famine, so severe that he went over to Egypt, nearly lost his wife there to the Pharaoh in Egypt, and then came back and had tensions between his uh, nephew Lot. And so the two families uh, kind of separated. In the intervening years as well, since the promise made that God would make a family out of him, uh, he became child still childless, right, with uh, Sarah. And then in the intervening years, uh, Sarah kind of gave uh, Abraham her slave, Hagar, uh, with which uh, then he had relations with, and then there was a son, Ishmael. Now, we must not be too quick to judge Abraham to say, yeah, you know, he, he actually did what was immoral, etc., etc. Uh, these were the customs of the day, and he's dealing with everyday realities. And so, according to the custom of the day, if the primary wife is not bearing, then, of course, uh, you can take subsequent wives to uh, produce an heir and uh, God did not specify at that time that it had to come from Sarah. And so, in the normal realities of life, we try to make do with what we have. And uh, so, there's this child now, and obviously, he's the joy of Abraham's life, Ishmael, uh, born to uh, Sarah's um, uh, slave, uh, Hagar. And so, for about 13 years, the child has been growing strong, and of course, Abraham to Abraham, you know, the, you know, God's promises is getting implemented and now, you know, through all the challenges, at least he, he's at a situation where he's got a son, he's a strong boy and, you know, uh, seems like everything is uh, going uh, at least in a satisfactory way. But God came to Abraham in Genesis 17 to provide specifications and clarifications on how exactly God wanted the covenant to be implemented. And so I want to quickly run through some of the key points of how God 
revealed further to Abraham the specifications of the covenant. The first, of course, remains foundational in that the covenant is based on a relationship between God and his chosen people. And so right off in the first verse, we read, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. The covenant relationship will continue to be the foundational calling of Abraham's life. Second, the specific promise is that his numbers out from his family will increasingly multiply. Now that promise is still afar off, but as we uh, saw, I mean, as I've recounted, he's already got one son. So that's a clear, visible sign that the covenant promises are going forward, at least from Abraham's perspective. However, God provided a clarification that this covenant promises of increasing numbers would come from Sarah, not Ishmael, um, not, not Hagar and Ishmael, the son, but from Sarah and Sarah's son. And so we read in um, the first part of verse 16 there, I will bless her, meaning Sarah, and will surely give you a son by her. Now at this point, Abraham is about 99 years old. So from the first call uh, that uh, Abraham received to this point is about 25 years. And in that 25 years, he, to him, he has already gotten at least something. Against all hope, he has now Ishmael. But God has given him a specific clarification that the son will come by Sarah. The covenant sign would be the sign of circumcision for Abraham's family. This would be the sign of the covenant, meaning Abraham's family will be marked out or defined by this sign that they belong to God. And this is very important because Abraham's family and later the nation of Israel will go through tremendous struggles and challenges. And in the face of all these circumstances, in the face of the changing uncertainties of life, they will have the unchanging sign of the covenant that they belong to God. But overall, from Abraham's perspective, God's promises actually disrupted Abraham's present reality. He's got a son, remember. It's quite likely in the 13 years of you know, uh, Ishmael's uh, life, Abraham would have placed his hopes on the boy and would have talked about the covenant with the boy. It's quite likely, I mean, it's not in the text, but you would, you would assume that there will be talks about, you know, how he would inherit God's promises, you know, when he grew up, etc. And so Abraham is, you know, in, in quite a satisfactory status quo, you understand. Uh, you know, and, and Genesis 17, how God provided additional specifications of the covenant really challenged his faith because he's nearly, obviously, he's no longer a spring chicken, if you, if you know the phrase. He's, he's nearly a hundred, he's pushing a hundred, wife is 90, um, and, and now God has put a huge challenge on his faith that his present reality is, up, is about to be disrupted 
what God has told him will require a mountain of faith to receive from God what God wanted to happen. But in the spite of all the challenges that he faced, Abraham had to believe God's covenant faithfulness. That is God's determination to see his promises fulfilled. His faithfulness to his own promises would overcome whatever challenges or constraints that Abraham and his family faced. And so at the start of this new year, I just want to ask us to embrace God's faithfulness for the coming year, specifically to renew our focus on what is important in our lives, to focus again upon our calling in Christ Jesus, and also in terms of embracing God's faithfulness in overcoming whatever constraints or limitations or challenges we face as we live for God. So our calling in Christ. Our covenant relationship with Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises that God made in the Old Testament. That first covenant with Abraham pointed towards the actual fulfillment where God will send his son and will call a people into existence by the life and death and resurrection of his son. And all of us are called into that relationship. The last part of uh, Romans 8 verse 28, who have been called, called, we are called. It's not so much a personal choice. It's not so much a personal determination. It is a call, God's gracious call upon our lives to come into relationship with him called to live not according to our own agendas, our own ambitions, but called to live according to God's purposes. If we live like that, if we live as called people to God's purposes, then realize that God is always at work in all of life's circumstances, in, a in all of life's complications, God is at work. To work for the good of those who love him uh, and are in a covenant relationship with him. And so, we need to refocus on what really matters. Just like, Abra just like Abraham's life, our lives are also complicated. Life happens, right? We, we, we have sincere belief, we have sincere foundational faith, but every day life happens to us. Things happen, we react to them. It's not that we intentionally want to do wrong or whatever or go astray, but life happens and because life happens, we tend to accumulate um, a lot of complexity, a lot of complications, a lot of baggage as we go through the years. But our Christian faith is not a call to deny the everyday existence and the practical constraints that we face. Our Christian faith is a calling that in the midst of this complicated life, we remember who we are, whose we are, who we are supposed to live for, and to refocus on what really matters. Luke chapter 10, a lot of us here have gone through this, uh, the story of uh, Martha and Mary. Martha is just uh, filled with anxiety, anxiousness, 
to get things done uh, for Jesus, no less. But Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. You remember this uh, in the, the, the last part of Luke chapter 10. And Jesus says to Martha, you know, you, you are burdened with a lot of things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. Jesus is not denying the everyday realities, the practical constraints, the things that we need to do. But he is calling us into a relationship with him. It is from a position of rest and relating to Jesus that we are able to deal with the complexities of life. But as we rest in our relationship with Christ, be ready for disruption. Disruption. Disruption to our comfort zones. Disruption is often the way God prepares us for the next level of experiencing Him at work in our lives and through our lives. Because it's quite often that in the status quo, we are self-satisfied with human arrangements and solutions. I've, you know, I've, I've got to this point of my career, you know, I'm comfortable now, I've got it all set up. Yeah, there have been compromises, there have been setbacks, but you know, I'm good in terms of being able to manage it. That's the status quo. And often, not always, often in that status quo, our faith is stagnant because we, have, we are managing the situation without God. Disruption to the status quo is often the means by which God opens up the vistas of our experience to experience Him in a fresh way to strengthen our faith, to prepare us for the next stage of our ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Disruption is never comfortable. But with God, disruption can be a vibrant experience of His grace, His provision, His anointing upon our lives. And so as we go through life's disruptions, realize that the calling we have in Christ is far more important than the circumstances we face in life. Through all these disruptive circumstances, God reminds us of who we are, the sign of the covenant, for us, the New Testament people of God, is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the outpouring of God's Spirit upon our lives. It is sustained by the life of the community, by baptism, coming to faith, by communion, when the church gathers together to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. These are signs and reminders for us that when we live by faith, when we live as God wants us to live, the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's people. And so it is on this foundation that we deal with the limitations of life. And of course, one of the limitations is personal or internal limitations. 
In the second part of verse 17 of chapter uh, 17 of Genesis, uh, Abraham laughs in, 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 you know, in disbelief of God's undertaking that his heir, his son, should come from Sarah. Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Uh, Abraham did not need modern science to know that after a certain age, you cannot produce anymore. He, yeah, you know. And what about his current son? So huge, Ishmael is a huge disruption to his family arrangements. And so God's calling on our lives often entails us facing up to our own limitations. We are limited in some way. There is something about our past or our present that limits us, that tells us it can't be, right? It's, it's impossible. I'm not the person God thinks I am. I'm not the one to live fully for Christ because of what happened or what is happening. Is it in facing these limitations, our failures, our guilt of the past, the pressures we face personally, that we encounter God's promise. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son. Our limitations are overcome by God's unlimited faithfulness. Uh, a lot of you would know uh, Johnny Erickson. Um, she, she was paralyzed by a diving accident in, in her teenage years, about 17 years, I think. And, uh, you, know, she, uh, you know, all those years of struggle, she really, you know, questioned whether she had a reason to live anymore because, you know, totally par paralyzed and, uh, you know, what, what possibly can God make out of her life? She's, you know, uh, wheel-bound, wheelchair-bound or uh, initially in, in hospital a lot of the time. And she really felt that, yeah, that, that, that what you call it, that reason for leaving is no longer present. And, uh, you know, despite press, you know, she's still in that situation. So it was very difficult for her. And so for a long time, that even with therapy, that wheelchair, that reality of the wheelchair was for her a terrible burden. This is her own words in her book. A trial for me that she cannot exist without the help of others and, and of course, in, uh, moving around in a wheelchair and, and being cared for in the everyday personal care that we take for granted. Uh, but she was talking to her friend. Uh, one of God sent her a, a friend who kind of worked with her throughout these issues and one day her friend mentioned that to help her see that her body, her broken body in that wheelchair is just a frame for God's portrait of her. And just that, it, you know, just like people go to an art gallery, we don't go and see the frame, we see the masterwork of the artist. Her friend helped her to see that her broken body and the wheelchair is just a frame but God is doing the real masterpiece. He, he, God is painting her life in ways that she cannot expect. 
that through God's work in her life, others might see the, the beauty of Christ in and through her life. And so from that point, she realized that the first time in my paralyzed life, this is quoting her again, for the first time in my paralyzed life, it was indeed possible for the wheelchair to be an instrument of joy. The wheelchair started out as a reminder of her brokenness and limitations. But through God's unlimited faithfulness, the wheelchair for her became an instrument of joy because in the years that she has served faithfully, many lives have been touched. She started a, a ministry for the disabled. Uh, she is an author or speaker and artist of many works that God has used to bless and encourage the lives of many. So for her, this would not have been possible without the wheelchair, without the fact of a broken life. And every day is an opportunity for her to look forward to the day where she will be made whole again in the presence of God. God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is not through Abraham's story, it's not that then every barren couple will have children. That's not the of course, God can heal, absolutely. But that's not the main message of the passage. The main message of the passage is that God's faithfulness will overcome any obstacle that life presents to His promises for you. Our eyes are not on the circumstances, our eyes are on God's faithfulness to overcome whatever that hinders God's promises and calling for our lives and the lives of our family. From internal limitations, we have external challenges. Part of God's promise to Abraham for him was the land. But, as stated in verse 8, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. So, he has received the covenant promises that this land will be given to his family. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, God has already clarified it will be 400 years before his family would inherit the land. And so, in the meanwhile, Abraham's have got to deal with the external reality that he is a foreigner to the land of his inheritance from God. That he is surrounded by many other strong and potentially dangerous tribes as he lived as God's people, bearing the promise of God. And so God's calling often looks impossible in the face of external realities. That, that the whole um, reality seems to be set up in such a way that makes God's promise impossible, at least from our perspective. And Abraham already knows that the full 
fulfillment of God's promise of the land will outlive him. So every day he knows that the situation is not going to improve in his favor as, you know, as regards to the land. He's, he's just hanging on to God's promises of inheritance. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants that promise he has to carry every day when the external circumstances suggest otherwise. That no matter what he no matter what plans, no matter what he does in this life, in his lifespan, he's not going to see the reality of that promise coming to being. He has to hold it up. He has to hold that promise and pass it to the next generation. He himself is not going to see that fulfillment of the land being given to his descendants. And just like Abraham, our faith needs to grasp God's reality over our present reality. This is not to deny the present reality. That means, oh, you know, I'm not going to live, I'm not going to go out of the bed, I'm just going to focus on uh, God's reality. No, we, we live as everyday, practical, productive Christians where we deal with the present external realities. But our faith calls us every day to grasp God's reality despite the fact that it looks impossible given the current circumstances. Take Malaysia. Every sign of hope and progress seems to be counter, countered by setbacks and, and folly and, and, and um, politicking instead of progress. And so for us, a lot of us, changing the political climate of this Nation seems to be a foolhardy, you know, enterprise. It's not going to work, you know, given the, the entrenched circumstances. It's not going to work, right? Why, why, why try to have a hope? But we don't realize that God is raising men and women of faith and integrity and calling them to serve in the political sphere against all odds. Take education. Most of us would gladly write off the education system of this nation is completely hopeless to a lot of us. There is no chance, zero. The chance to a lot of us, the chances of anything improving in our education system is somewhere between zero and non-existent. It is not credible what we have. But yet, most of us don't realize that God is working and raising a new generation of young Christians, talented and skilled, with a good heart for children and, and calling them to the teaching profession. And in our own circumstances, the life of our family, we may see also, yeah, I mean, the circumstances are, you know, it's not much hope. So we give up on God's promises, we give up on God's faithfulness because we are confronted with everyday realities that suggest that it's impossible for anything good to come out of it. And this is where our faith needs to rise up and grasp God's reality. Because it is God's faithfulness that will bring it to pass. 
Wilberforce is a, he lived in the 18th century, um, uh, thereabouts. He was a member of parliament uh, very early on in his 20s. He became a member of parliament uh, in the early 1780s. And he had an experience with Christ. He became a very devout and committed Christian. And um, he got uh, involved with efforts to abolish slavery. Now, slavery, the slave trade at that time was an entrenched system, you understand. At the national level, it's not you know, some private enterprise mistreating workers. It was an entrenched system of national prosperity and richness. Since the early 1600s, uh, you have this slave trade. Uh, Britain was part of the slave trade. It, they, some call it the triangular trade because the trade ships will bring goods and services from uh, Britain and they will, they will sail down to the coast of uh, West Africa, sell those goods and services, bring on board captured slaves on those same ships, bring those ships across the Atlantic Ocean to the West Indies, the Caribbean uh, in our modern day uh, language, and sold those slaves there to slave owners there, and then brought goods and services from the Caribbean and went back to sell uh, in Britain. So it was part of an entrenched system of trade that enriched the Europe nations, including Britain, at the expense of human slaves. And so, you know, it's not something, again, some private injustice that we, you know, have an activist campaign and, you know, go get them. Everything was entrenched from the political uh, system to the private uh, com uh, commercial system. It was entrenched in the slave trade. And so a group of them, and William was uh, a part of that effort, they started to fight for parliament to pass laws against this unjust trade. And obviously, as you would expect, a lot of setbacks. It's entrenched, right? Um, in, in those years, in fact, a lot of people, Christians including, said that the slave trade was possible because the, 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 the African slaves, they were less than human. So that's why it is... You know, in fact, slavery will bring them to a better place because they have Western civilization, etc., etc. So the only way you can justify slave trade is to obviously uh, treat the other human being as something less than human. That's, that's the only way you can justify. And so he was fighting against all that, he and others, was fighting against this entrenched system. Uh, in uh, 20 years from his days in parliament, they passed a law in 1804, uh, 1807, the Safe Trade Act, to, to banned the, the, the trading ships from getting on slaves, but the, the, the system of slavery was still entrenched, and so the fight was on and on until in 1833, the British Parliament passed uh, the Slavery Abolition Act that abolished the practice of slavery. And by that time, William has given the best years of his life in fighting slavery, in fact, uh, he was on his deathbed when the news came to him that finally, after all these years in 1833, the parliament passed the Slave Abolition Act and he passed away three days later. All the best years of his life, to the very last, he was engaged in, in fighting for what he believed God entrusted him to do in the face of extreme external circumstances. God's faithfulness to his promises 
to his plans, to his calling for us as his people reminds us that the external circumstances from though difficult from our perspective is not a hindrance to his promise. Isaac. Isaac represented God's fulfillment for Abraham. The sign that the covenant promises coming to reality in the lifetime of Abraham. Even though the actual fulfillment, the complete fulfillment is years and centuries ahead. The birth of Isaac represents God's faithfulness over the internal, physical, personal limitations of both Abraham and Sarah. But it is also the start of God's fulfillment that a nation, many numbers will come from Isaac that will finally inherit the land of promise. And so even though Abraham did not see the full fulfillment of God's promises in his own lifetime, God gave him a sign through the birth of an impossible son, Isaac. That child of promise, that child that will bring joy and laughter to the life of Abraham and, and, and Sarah. The child that symbolizes God's faithfulness. And so I pray for all of us here that in the coming year, by this time next year, you would receive that sign and grace of God's faithfulness and calling for your life and the lives of your family in spite of the personal limitation and external reality you might be facing. I pray that in the coming year, by this time next year, that we as the people of God here would also receive the sign and the promise that God is moving ahead with what He wants our church to do in how he wants us as a people to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to end by a prayer and just want to ask that we bow our heads and give ourselves to the Lord even right now. I want to ask that you search within your hearts by the help of the Holy Spirit that whatever internal limitations you feel you have, whatever failures, whatever fears, whatever brokenness in your life that tells you that you cannot fulfill your potential in the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you bring before the Lord even right now. I ask that you also bring the external environment, the circumstances that you find yourself in, impossible though it may be, for you to see right now any resolution, I ask that you remember our nation and our church as well in the external environment in which we are called to live. And even as the Lord impresses upon your heart, I ask that you bring before the Lord even right now Father, in the midst of our hopes, our joy, 
our struggles, our fears. Even as we are brought before your throne of grace, we ask, O Lord, that you do a new work in our lives. Even as we willingly submit to you, gracious God, we pray that you create space in our lives and in the external environment, space in which your great faithfulness will be at work to overcome and to show us your glory, your faithfulness to overcome our personal limitations and struggles, your great and awesome power, O oh Lord, to overcome the difficult environment or the external circumstances we face, even as we surrender our hearts and our lives to you by your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the prayers of your people, Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.